even in the overwhelmingness of a massive problem, to know that you can do something and you can do it every day and that you are going to make a difference every single day, that's what gets me up in the morning. Today on Dirty Linen, we are thinking about the not-so-distant future. With the world's population projected to reach nearly 10 billion by 2049, there are all kinds of ways to think about how we might feed ourselves. Today, we are taking a futuristic AI-inspired art direction. Our guest is uh, Anna Reeves, or A-Ray. She's an interdisciplinary artist, a story maker. She's got a background in in law as well and advocacy, working um, against poverty. And I'm really excited to dig into what she's doing as part of her Futurology, Futurology Collective with um, Gloop Corp. I feel like I've said a lot of words, Anna, but welcome to Daddy Linen. Oh, thanks so much for having uh, me. I, I don't have my fellow co-conspirator Ace Salama with me today, but yes, he's busy still working on the exhibit as we're two days away but thank you for having us no it's great to have you on the show um, and I feel like you would be an incredibly interesting person to meet at a party or in the checkout line um, but yeah we'd never be able to cover all the many things that you do but how do you describe yourself and what you do well I think futurology is our collective our arts collective that uh, we're a future focused arts collective so pretty much everything we do is in a and explored uh, exploration of imagined future worlds. And we basically do this through a process we call futureneering. And that helps us focus our speculative de design and artwork around different scenarios. So that's sort of something what we do. Um, we're basically obsessed with the future. <laughs> um, even though there's probably no such thing as the future, really, humans are very bad with uh, understanding future timelines often. And uh, as we are with the past, we have very different sort of views about how we view these things but we like to look at them as more as worlds and realities um, that's what we do in our practice and it very much helps us uh, center around story meaning and culture and that's the main area that we like to work in and we work across disciplines with different technologists and different types of people across disciplines so we can actually learn from other disciplines and they can learn from us and it's a really fantastic creative process to go through. And so tell us how this intersects with food. Well, um, I think I'll give you a good example of maybe the if you're interested just in the futureering process with a previous exhibition and then I can tell you a little bit more about um, and, and what the results of that exhibition were to, to help you understand sort of why we go with food on this one. Um, in our previous last exhibition we, we called the Metaverse Store, we created a retail store in Little Collins Street um, and in that particular exhibition, we were selling virtual products from a future metaverse. So we're exploring people's understanding of metaverse. That was last year when all that talk was happening around the metaverse and also, you know, GPT-3, the AI discussions was just starting. People thought we were insane. We didn't know what we were talking about last year um, around that kind of thing and the idea of AI companions and our relationships to artificial intelligence possibly in the form of virtual sentient beings that we see now having discussions around robots and those science fiction visions of the future we have had as kids and seen in movies. Uh, and in that exhibition we spoke to about, had one-on-one -on -one conversations with over 5,000 people um, in the store that basically some of them stayed for up to three hours exploring the different little products that we created, over 80 products in that particular exhibit. 
um, people from all walks of life and people, what we discovered was people absolutely love engaging with the concept of the future and they loved having a space where they could actually explore their notion of future for themselves personally but also for the world. Um, it was a place they could explore their hopes and their fears, um, their relationship to AI, uh, mental privacy, all the concerns they have around it. Uh, and in that particular exhibition, we also had a layer around virtual consumption, the idea that could virtual consumption be a means to reduce real-world overconsumption that is a huge contributor of waste. So we definitely underpin most of our exhibitions with looking at how all, all of our activity intersects with sustainability. It's the biggest issue we all have together collectively. So that has to inform what we do. And so coming to the Gloop Corp, <laughs> um, because we are artists that definitely we're site-specific artists, so we all, all, all respond to our immediate environment. So in the Metaverse store example, it was a retail store, it was an old jewellery store that we inhabited and had lots of little cabinets in it. We, so we had 80 products in all the cabinets. Now, with Gloop Corp, it's a really fun one because it's an actual old um, disused factory, an old auto showroom that exists in the heart of Southbank. And uh, it used to be the old BMW building, um, which is now um, empty uh, at the moment. So that sort of sparked imaginations around um, Gloop Corp and, uh, you know, what what a world basically uh, would look like. Um exploring urban food systems um, and Gloop Corp in this fictional scenario is an AI um, enhanced uh, corporation that can create synthetic food to feed the population in 2049. So it started out as a, a corporation that um, wanted to see seek an environmental solution in the form of synthetic food and we've ended up with a place where people can come and collect a substance called Gloop um, that contains all their nutrients, that's determined by an AI and personal to the person in front of them. So the idea of this hyper-personalisation, it's almost like um, technology is becoming so rapid and so hyper-personalised. That's one theme that we explore uh, in, the, in the exhibit. Um, but also across the lens of food, uh, we're also looking, um, and, and in that example, we're also looking at how, in a way, how AI feeds feeds us and how we feed AI as well. There's another layer around that. But in terms of also looking at the underlying real issues that we're, we're really facing with some of the planetary challenges with global temperatures reaching 1.5 degrees probably in all of our lifetime, there's no doubt that that will impact our food systems. Uh, so in examining that, um, we're also looking at what the other side of that is and that for some it may embrace the synthetic food where an AI determines our tastes and can create a taste sensation for us or a visual exploration through perhaps an interface with, you know, um, augmented reality or extent, um, extended reality, even though we're eating a fairly bland substance. So it could, could be that we explore how our mind food interacts with us. And on the other hand is the, the connection, the culinary connections around food that are so important as human beings. And, you know, we've imagined that to stand for 
you know, real uh, real food, real food, and real farming practices. Um, we've created a, a counterforce called the Real Food Re- Real Food Revels, and they're a sort of counterforce in this scenario where they inhabit underground a part of the quote gloop factory, um, where some of the workers are part of the underground group, and they're seeking to preserve. Um, food seeds, they're seeking to have veggie swaps, those sort of things under the nose of this this corporation. So there's two elements to the exhibition that people can engage and explore with around the issue. Wow. <laughs> um, I feel like my brain just exploded about 50 times as you were speaking then. It's, there's so much in that, my goodness. I guess I'll just randomly say a few of the things that came up for me. So one of them was this idea of this fascination with the future, but also this terror of it, um, and I suppose an uncertainty about how we might fit into a real or imagined future. Um, and I think, yeah, as you say, like our human response to 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 so much so many predictions is to completely put our head in the sand and um yeah get obsessed with something on netflix for example um or yeah to be to really embed ourselves in in something very specific and personal like like a particular diet or becoming obsessed with food that's suited to our genetic makeup or I don't know any kind of rabbit hole that people can go down with with nutrition and personalized eating plans um and then I think was also thinking about what we often discuss on on this podcast and on our other podcasts of producers where it is a lot about those real food rebels who are um getting you know their hands dirty and obsessing with soil and thinking about microbes um that are building their own worlds um and yeah creating their own life cycles uh, in the soil, which feeds us all. And then I was just went off on a tangent and thinking about can, um, can gloop, um, yeah, how does gloop, it has to come from nature somehow. So how does it come from nature? And then I also wondered, do you actually get to eat anything at, at this exhibition? So um, <laughs> yeah, so th- those are some of my thoughts. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, absolutely. We couldn't do it without eating. Um, and that's been one of the great things. So there's a there's a wonderful process we do is collaborations with different people from different disciplines. So we have done that in this occasion. And uh, in terms of the uh, food, the um, we've collaborated with a, a chef who's actually a Cordon Bleu chef um, who has a background in ice cream making and, and flavours of all extraordinary. He's known for his extraordinary ice cream flavours, Chef Gigi. Um, he's got a love, a fantastic uh, Gigi's Gelato in Yarraville um, where he explores and experiments with flavours like, uh, you know, blue cheese ice cream, for example. So we thought he could be a very interesting person to collaborate with to create this substance. Um, and he went on a real journey and that's what I love about the futureering process because he hadn't um, considered that there may be some foods that go extinct in our lifetime. And diving into the research, um, there are a number of foods that will potentially be affected. They may not entirely go extinct. In all likelihood, we'll probably be some GMO versions of them or they may go down the synthetic route or they may become more resilient in some regards. But they'll definitely be affected in a lot of extreme weather moments like we have seen during the pandemic or or even through weather systems and droughts now. So when he was confronted with that reality as a chef saying, oh, my goodness, I might not be able to practice my art form in the way that I think I might in 20 years' time, I hadn't actually ever thought about that. 
Um, I've always just, you know, um, had my ingredients and maybe things are affected by prices and things like that. But in terms of something not being there anymore, like chocolate or like coffee or like bananas or strawberries, that for a chef is significant. But he took that challenge on and he said, I'm really glad I had the opportunity because he then, we, we told him that um, this substance needed to be vegan. I think that that is probably a direction we're all maybe heading in um, in the future. And so he explored around um, creating this substance and he was definitely went through a lot of iterations to come up with a now a very green-looking substance. <laughs> oh, so is, is the substance gloop or is it something yes that's the gloop substance so you'll you'll go through the process when you come to the exhibition if you are able to make it down visitors will be able to have an, an interaction with i won't give away too much but they will be able to have an interaction with um the factory itself as in it is sentient and it will talk to them and it will give them their gloop ration and they'll be able to eat it Right. It's so interesting what you said, Anna, about, you know, when you did the metaverse and chat GPT was just really something that no one could get, well, I couldn't get my head around. Um, but now it's like we've all had a chance to play with it and it's like, oh, okay, you can you can sort of, yeah, you realise that you're, you're living in the future that you couldn't imagine just a year ago. Um, I mean, how fast do you think things are changing you you've, you're sort of exploring 2049 like does that seem distant or um yeah we're on the precipice of it i think it is the future we imagine is here i mean it's, that's why i say it's hard to we have a, a concept of future from things like science fiction um and when those technologies and it's not always a technological thing either there's a whole suite of things that follow from our you know from futures not just technology it's also everything else it's 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 you know it's world building in every aspect of you have to imagine an entire new world that's why we call it a world building uh concept um but yeah it's fast approaching and i think in in the sense that a lot of people have discussed AI suddenly, you know, it's become the mainstream, so to speak. So when you see mainstream media covering it, that's when it feels closer. But people that have been in this space for a long time have known about all these ethical issues, for example, for a long time. And we would, we've just heard more and more and more of them. So as we said, we see hopes and fears come with any, any anything this just sort of when we say disruptive, it's disruptive in, in the business world quite significantly because it will change the way we work because it's giving us a, a lot of a boost of intelligence in some areas. And, of course, people are afraid of something that is potentially more intelligent than them because they've seen The Terminator or they've seen sort of movies that have explored those darker sides of what can happen. Um, but in terms of food, I think the most exciting thing, and I'm sure you've spoken to many folks who are working on future food ideas and solutions and culinary explorations um i think what's exciting is what is happening just even locally and our local um you know collaborations around people wanting to have community more community gardens and wanting to grow veggies on their balconies and things like that and maybe that sprang from you know sadly uh, pandemic times or, or or things like that but there's a great delight around that where we can be empowered in our own backyard, so to speak, even if we do live in apartments or we do live in other places um, where we can actually 
you know, connect around the, you know, community, like community really around food. I think that's an exciting future thing I'd look for, I look forward to more and more, uh, even if it is born out of maybe necessity in some cases. Well, it's interesting because I think so much of that, those things that we consider to be innovative or future-looking are also a return to the past in so many ways, perhaps with a bit of technology that augments it, whether it's about, you know, we've got an app where we can grow stuff on our balcony, we can we can grow different stuff to our neighbours and then we can share it through this app or whatever it is. So there are sort of, there's this combination or this tension or this, yeah, or this beautiful interweaving of... Um, of stripping away some of the some of the innovations that perhaps haven't let us down great paths, um, intertwined with that's right. It, it's not always technological. I mean, techno optimists always say technology is the solution. But look at our beautiful First Nations, Indigenous um, p- people, and their systems of knowledge around food. It's extraordinary, and their leadership is very much needed in this space because, you know, there's a there's a huge incredible ancestral history of connection to land and sustainable farming practices and land practices that we could we can learn from in in moving forward into a world that's not so technology is not always the solution in that sort of you know um uh, you know mechanical way it can be technology in different ways uh, and that that's exciting i guess it can be in you know it can be thinking in the way that we think about things as well. So I know that culinary biodiversity is one of your sort of touchstones. Can you talk about what that means to you? I think, again, it's represented by the real food rebels who are are seeking to sort of preserve uh, seeds. And so that's that's why we collab, again, we form collaboration with Slow Food Melbourne, Slow Food Australia, who are, you know, they've got a fantastic project called the ARC uh, project, Arc Taste project. So that is collecting uh, seeds and um, uh, from all different types of varieties um, of, of plants and food that we that that need to be catalogued and preserved. Um, because often, you know, in the in the mass pr- consumption chains, um, you know, to feed everybody, we sometimes lose biodiversity because we've we've got to you know produce at mass scale. Um, you know, in these sort of very large corporate environments that, that facilitate that. And sometimes, yeah, obviously we, we do need to want to feed everyone, but there's also importance around preservation of variety because mono food and mono farming can also be not good because we, we know that from even from a just a soil regeneration um, basis. So again, it's it's not demonising anyone in this process, in my view. I mean, there's there's obviously um, situations where you know if, if, thing, if people aren't doing the right thing, that's a different story. But but collaboration and working together is the most important thing because everyone's in this, and more collaboration, in my view, is is really needed to create that possibility of future as well, particularly around biodiversity. It's not just you know, it, it, it's a conversation and a dialogue and that's what we're hoping to stimulate around. This is what this does. Um, so I think, yeah, I think Slow Food uh, have, in their contribution to the exhibition, we've worked with them to, to really look at some of the messages that they're trying to uh, get out there around, you know, pre- preserving food and traditional practices and encouraging local sustainability 
um, actions and and supporting local farming groups and all of those things that are very important as we move through this next phase because we are in an adaptation phase you know um we are adapting we're, we're kind of there is elements of prevention which are around things that are a lot much bigger political scale so that's t- looking at you know the, the infrastructure pieces around renewables and those sort of things around emissions which is the source of the problem and then there are the adaptation strategies that filter down and bloop is probably an extreme at- adaptation strategy you know like but it's also showing it's not so good. It's good and not so good. So, and that's the idea with this. Um, but the real food rebels are the heart and soul. They're kind of a bit like <laughs> the Rebel Alliance from Star Wars in a way. Um, and I think people hopefully will connect with them. And they'll also be able to experience um, a great meal as well um, from, the, from the rebels as well because they, uh, they celebrate with, uh, with wonderful food in their little section. Ah, wow. I mean, I'm I'm always wary to look for, you know, desired outcomes when we talk about art, but it does sound like your art is activist as well. I mean, what do you how do you see that tension and, and are there outcomes that you that you hope will come from this? Um, I'm not sure if I call myself an activist. I mean, I definitely am I definitely respond to uh to, to pressing issues, absolutely. And I do feel that art's a wonderful medium to explore things um, that can be serious, that scare us and that we can engage with. I think it creates a little bit of, yeah, there's there's definitely people might be provoked into not liking this or reacting against it, and that's a good thing because then they can they can really explore their own feelings about certain topics. That's what, what it's supposed to do. Um, but yeah, I think we, we we do serve a little role in creating the space for that for people to then interact with and respond to, especially around food, like memories of food, and you know being able to um, you know like connect with things that um, inspire them about the technology um, and maybe where we don't want to go or where we do want to go. Um, I think part of that is the process we went through with the students from Swinburne, who I should definitely mention because they are part of the exhibition. Um, We tasked them with this scenario to actually respond to food spaces and food systems that they have designed around. So they're masters of design and architecture. And we took them through the futureering process for the past semester. And that's what their challenge was. And so they were challenged with creating um, spaces and um, places of, of dining experiences and culinary experiences. So what they've come up with is really interesting because they are the next generation. Um, they will potentially have to design around new food ex- experiences and spaces um, because our food systems might change because of, because of climate change uh, in some regards or even technology. Anna, I'd love to learn more about you and how you came to be working in this way. You know, you've got this background um, in law and um, working against poverty. Um, tell us about that and, and what drew you along this path? Um, I think, well, that was a fair while ago now where I worked um, with an organisation that is um, – at their fledgling stage, uh, was working on an anti-poverty campaign with them and in the US as well. Um, they went on to 
uh, go on to do some other campaigns in a, in a fairly large way. So I think I was definitely inspired by my interactions and touch points with that organisation. Um, I guess I just, uh, in terms of just, I don't know how I ended up here really, but I, I'm a curious person and in our collective, um, like I said, we there's a lot, you know, there's different, lo lots of us in the collective um, with different, different backgrounds. Um, I just love the intersection of things um, around. I've always gravitated towards innovation in whatever whatever force it is. I, I do have an arts background. I did start out in, in um, the arts and, and theatre, theatre making. Um, I attended the VCA. So I, I do have a background in, um, in sort of arts and also then practised uh, in the law. Um, and then, yeah, I guess I just am a person who is curious about the world and that's driven most of my interest in various things that I explore and then connect with others around. Um, I guess I do want to see the world become better <laughs> like everyone and I think the future does belong to everyone and I think that everyone, people have a say in that and I feel like if we can use what we have and so in our collective, Ace Salama, who's my lead artist co-founder of Futurology. I mean, he's very passionate about these issues as well um, and we talk about them all the time. So I think it's it's just a desire to see, you know, our specific, you know, skill set is artistic, creative, creative practice. I think law is creative. I, I draw on that a lot with um, that part of my brain as well and we use all of these melting kind of um, interdisciplinary things to then express it through this way. But other people do it in other ways, you know. Um, and whatever, I, I just feel like whatever you have, um, whatever skills you have, um, you you can use those to make us even a small change to, to every day. Um, you can make a better future in some form by just doing different choices every day. And people will do that at different levels. You know, it doesn't mean you have to go out and become, you know, a, a, a politician. Um, but some people may take that pathway. But if you, you know, connect with your local sustainability group, you can do a lot of change locally. And I think that's what people want. They want to, even even in the in the, I guess even in the overwhelmingness of a massive problem, to know that you can do something and you can do it every day, and that you are going to make a difference every single day um that's really that's what gets me up in the morning yeah that's really powerful and I, I i guess one thread i see through what you do is this belief in the power of storytelling um i mean you, you spoke about the intelligence or genius and interconnectedness of some in, of indigenous thinking and of course that's so bound up in in storytelling and shared narratives and narratives that are passed on and can be acted upon I mean do you feel like if there was more storytelling in the world that that would be a positive a hundred percent I think we are absolute story creatures and we we derive meaning from everything that's I think that's very human it's very deep in us I think we are going to go through a bit of a challenging time because AI will challenge some of our um, shared reality because of the nature of it, because it's just something that we're already seeing what they call hallucinations in some of the outputs that are coming out of the use of those um, 
those platforms. So we do need to be wary of, you know, I think that's one of our biggest challenges with stories. Like we, we know frameworks for, you know, formats of stories. So there's, a, you know, different disciplines in art. We have traditionally have those. But when storytelling gets in the way of, I guess, factual things that we need to have as a shared truth, we also need to be wary of that, I think. In terms of the contribution and the incredible um, history that First Nations people bring to storytelling, it's absolutely necessary. They, they are incredibly, um, there is a deep ancestral history and we've got a lot to learn around how we really embrace storytelling in our everyday lives especially around uh, things like food systems, for example. And I think, you know, we, sh- we, we should be open to being, you know, to all, inter- you know, intersection of these knowledge systems together because I think that is actually going to create a better world in the end. Yeah, I guess it, it makes me think that if, if we thought of food systems as more narrative and less transaction, then that would be a vast improvement. Absolutely. Like if you, if you know where food comes from, I mean, in fact, a good example of that is I, years and years ago, I uh, started a food club, we called it, um, just, just to connect with friends. There was a bunch of us that we were all single and we didn't really know many people in Melbourne and we just formed a little club where we would get together over a meal and we would um, we would have a theme for that particular meal and everyone would go away and and research their particular cuisine and then they would present that cuisine and talk about where it came from and I think we need to do a bit more of that particularly as we approach food insecurity and people are struggling out there around that particular issue as well and we're not in a isolated place or, or nation it might seem that we are very fortunate in Australia to have an abundant food bowl and system but our actions also affect other, um, we're all interconnected to different um, nations out there who are producing raw food, you know, raw materials and um, anything that affects the weather systems there will affect potentially um, our, not, not only their economic systems, but also ours as well. So having some empathy for others in different nations and supporting initiatives that, you know, the sustainable development goals, for example, that can absolutely um, look at the inequalities in, in some of our food systems and, you know, put our mind to maybe putting some support around systems of aid or, or whatever that is, maybe, um, that, that will actually help everyone. And... It's something we all have to be a bit more mindful of, this interconnected concept of we don't, we're interconnected through food in so many different ways and being more aware of those systems, whatever touch point you want to make an improvement um, will help everyone. Yeah, no, I think that's, yeah, so well said. I think it can be, it can be overwhelming to think like that, but I think it can also be empowering. Um, and I think, yeah, you've, you've expressed that really well and, I reckon maybe that's one of the things that people will get from the exhibition. Hopefully. Um, also yeah. to have some fun. <laughs> um, fun is always good. Yeah. I mean, we, we're also raising, like with our ticket sales, we're also raising 
some funds for um, Food Bank of Victoria. So, we're, yeah, we're very mindful of some of the food insecurity issues in our own city. So that's also what we're trying to do as well, just to make sure that we're trying to help others in this process. Fantastic. Um, so we'll put the links to the exhibition in the show notes um, but uh, and a link to Futurology because, um, yeah, so fascinating, so much reading and thinking to do. Um, A-Ray, thank you so much for taking the time to have a chat with us today. Um, really appreciate it and always love having my brain exploded, so thanks for that as well. <laughs> Absolute <laughs> pleasure. Anytime. We like brain explosions at Futurology, so... <laughs> You're very welcome to join us on this uh, adventure. Yeah, I'm I'm on. (laughs) This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This.